0: I would encourage you to also just stick around after the service. This really, before the service, is hard to get to talk to you. We, this is our kind of one time a week. Some of us meet in growth groups on every other or every second and fourth week and meet at the men's fellowship, meet at the women's fellowship. But it's just good to see one another. Shake hand, hug, kiss. Um, encourage one another. So don't leave right away, if you would, if you, unless you absolutely have to leave. And just stay and hang out for a few minutes after the service. So last week, I... By the way, here's something else I wanted to tell you. How important each and every one of you are to be here at the service. Let me show you what happens. See the cross? Yeah, the cross is usually displayed very beautifully right behind me, front and center, and in the center of the thing. But there's a family, there's a particular man who does that, and his vehicle broke down. So he wasn't here, so the cross didn't get put up. So there are Everyone does a little bit, and that's how we we come together every morning and, and kind of pull this thing off. And so you're you're very important. When there's somebody missing, something's left undone. So we need you. We need one another. And that's why I want to encourage you: come, come, be faithful. Make it a a part of your life that you come every Sunday and get involved because we need the help. We cannot do it alone. So this morning we're in. Part two of, a, as Jason said, a message we started. I started last week. We're going to be in Mark 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 27. So if you don't have a, a Bible, you can just pick up one of those blue Bibles. If you turn to page 846, that'll bring you to this section in Mark that we'll be looking at. You know, I was thinking one of the things I've really enjoyed, I mean, there's many things I've enjoyed as a dad and and as a husband, but one of them, you might find this silly, is opening jars. Do you know what I'm talking about? The wife tries to open it, right? And as my kids grew up, they thought they would give it a crack, especially my son. And it's, there's a certain delight you take in watching everybody do all that they can to open the jar. And then they bring it over to you, and with all your macho-ness, you just say, here you go. Right? Look at that. Uh, Every once in a while, I've been hit with a jar that even I could not open, and that is embarrassing, right? Because you're you're red-faced, and you got this ring in your hand now. And but something about that jar, you know, the reason they can't open the jars, they just they don't have the strength. That's really all it is. They just don't have the strength. Even when I've tried to teach my wife the technique of the reverse. To, to turn and everything. It's just not there. She doesn't have it in her wrist and her forearm. And as the, the children are young, they don't have it either. They don't have the strength to access that jar. Well, that's very much like salvation. We, by ourselves, do not have the strength to open the jar that that allows us to experience the blessings of salvation. We don't. And just like my wife and, and my son, who who used to try really hard as he got older and and would give it, give it all. He'd go get something, because he heard if you bang on the lid, maybe that'll help. And he'd run it under hot or cold water. He'd watch them go through all this effort. All the while I'm sitting there thinking, just bring it over to me and I'll open it. <laughs> and that's just like the Father. Our Heavenly Father. People trying so hard to to gain access to salvation. They don't have the strength. And the only way they're going to be able to to experience it is if they go to the Father and and ask Him to give it to them. So that's really what we're talking about. We're still focused on that. I believe it's the gist of this whole passage. But let's look at the text. I'm going to read it all. And then what I'll do is I'll just review last week, in case you weren't here or just by way of reminder, and then we're going to focus on the second point in the second half of the passage, okay? That's where we're going this morning. Mark 10:17 through 27 And he was setting out on his journey, that is Jesus, with his disciples. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. With God. So this morning we're going to, and if you have a bulletin, you can look inside on the left hand part of that and you'll see a outline, an outline, and basically we're going to study the second salvation truth or the second point that we must embrace if we want to inherit eternal life, be certain of that, and bring glory to God. So before we do that, let me just review the first point that we covered last week. External compliance to the law of God will never bring salvation. External compliance to the law of God will never bring salvation. This man came to Jesus asking what he might do in order to be saved and inherit eternal life. We just read it from the text. But before Jesus answered this man's, which I believe is a sincere question, Jesus presented him with his own question and then made a very important statement. Why do you call me good? There is only one good, God. No one is good except God alone. And the reason Jesus did that, as we looked at that last week, is this man needed to come to grips with his own sinfulness and his lack of goodness, recognizing that there is only one who is truly good, and that is God. Comparing his supposed goodness to God's actual Goodness, He and really, beloved, all of humanity, all of us, should see ourselves like a helpless and needy child who can only cry out for God's mercy. Because of our inherited, inherited sinful hearts, and recognize that true righteousness, the righteousness that we desperately need, we do not have. We don't have it, beloved, and we are unable to obtain it on our own. We are weak, and we are unable to open that jar. Jesus further confronts the man with the ultimate standard of righteousness, the perfect law of God. But the man was not moved to despair by Jesus' command or even instruction. You know, keep the commandments. That didn't bother him. Look, if it was me standing there and I was talking to Jesus and I didn't know and I said, How will I inherit eternal life? And he said, Jeremy, you know, keep the commandments. Are you serious? Is there another way? But not this man. That didn't bother him at all, didn't move him to despair. He, he says, All these I have kept. And we talked about this last week. Undoubtedly, he was taught that external obedience to the law of God was the end goal. In other words, if you comply with the law of God outwardly, then you're good. But Jesus makes it very clear that compliance with the law of God, true obedience to the law of God, is something that is done not only outwardly, but inwardly. Inwardly. And if it is not kept outwardly and inwardly, then in reality it has not been kept at all. It is obedience, beloved, not only with the hands, what you do, but also with the heart, what you think, what you feel, what you meditate upon, your emotions, all of that stuff. And last week we looked at Matthew 5:27 through 28. And I'll just remind you of this. Remember, that's where Jesus says that if you have eternal lust because that's where it comes from from the inside if you have lust for a woman as a married man that is really a violation of God's law against adultery See and that shocked them because the pharisees said hey we haven't committed adultery yeah i know you've heard that it said you've heard it said do not commit adultery but i'm saying to you if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart You have committed adultery with her in your heart. He takes it one step further. He says, By the way, you've heard the law against murder. You know it's wrong to murder, and you stand here and say, We've never murdered anybody. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. What? See, the Pharisees didn't like all this because they were good at externally complying with the law of God, unlike you and I, who do not focus our lives around the Old Testament law, they did. They did. And they even invented hundreds of other laws as fences just to keep them from the possibility that they might violate the letter of the law in any way. So when these Pharisees or this rich young ruler come up and say, listen, we've kept the law, I don't doubt it for a second. They certainly have externally. But inside, Jesus says, there's all kinds of corruption going on. Who hasn't lusted? Who hasn't been angry at his brother? You guys are guilty. And this is interesting because before He says all that, He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. You need to think hard and long about this statement. Jesus said this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, the people who knew the law and made it their life's effort to keep that law externally, unless it exceeds them, you will never, you see that word again, never, Never. We've seen that before when he was talking about you can you must receive the kingdom like a child of God or you will never enter. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? You you we missed this cuz we just read over it, but that would have been so shocking to those who were standing there and heard that. You got to be kidding me. The scribes and the Pharisees are the masters. Okay? They are fifth degree black belts or whatever, I don't even know what the highest degree is, of law keepers. They got it down. 24 7, they're devoted to the letter of the law. And Jesus, you're saying we have to do better than that or we can't get into heaven? Yeah. And what he meant by that is they lack something. They lack true righteousness. And that's what you need. You think they're righteous. Because on the outside, they appear beautiful and righteous to men because they comply with the law. But inside, there's disobedience and there's rebellion. Why, beloved? Because they're sinners in the core of their being. They have inherited a nature that stands opposed to God and says, I will do things the way I want to do things a nature that every human being has inherited. He's saying, you guys need something that you don't have. And in reality, you're not going to be able to get on your own. In a sense, he's saying, you see the jar over there? You've got to be able to open it. What do you mean? We got, no one's been able to open that jar. Yeah, exactly. But that's where the stuff is that you need to get into heaven. The righteousness that you need, it's right over there you got to be kidding me! But that's what Jesus was saying. God's true intent of the law went above and beyond, in other words, what the scribes and Pharisees taught and did. Listen, beloved, the Bible teaches that the righteous law of God has been fulfilled, has been fulfilled, inwardly and outwardly by only one person in all of history. You probably know who that is. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a pope. It was Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ is the only one who lived a perfect life. Meaning that He was truly righteous. Not only outwardly, but inside as well. There was no sin in Him. Everyone else on their own, everyone else, every single human being born on their own has fallen short of what they need to enter God's kingdom. Or they will on their own. They need righteousness. They do not have it. Only one has lived up to the perfect standard. That is Jesus Christ. So that was last week. And you can listen to the Sermon from last week, you can download it. But this week, we want to look at the second part of the text. Jesus lovingly now tells this law-keeping man that he still lacked one thing. And remember we talked about that last week. Listen, if law-keeping is the answer, then why did Jesus tell this man, you lack one thing? He kept it. But he kept it externally. And there was no way he was going to keep it internally because inside was sin. We can hide our sin. We do it all the time. We do it at church. We become experts at it, actually. So if you've been in the church culture long enough, you begin to learn all the lingo, and you learn how to smile at the right time and say the right things, and you can appear like everything is just hunky-dory. you don't got no problems. No sin. Nah, no, I don't mess with that stuff at all. You know, I'm just a good boy or girl. That doesn't mean there's not all kinds of mess going on inside of your life or inside of your heart or inside of your mind. So Jesus tells this man, listen, you still lack one thing. And that brings us to the second point in the outline. Entire reliance on Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. It is the only way to be saved. And I know over the last three weeks, we've been spending a lot of time talking about salvation. Guess what? That's what we do. That's what we do here. It is all about the cross. It is all about salvation. I can't think of anything else more important to talk about. If there was something more important, I would tell you. Right? I guess we could have you know, a message on how to protect your 401k when the market drops 500 points. <laughs> and I bet you I could fill this room and double and oversize. I bet you I could. If they really believed I had the answer for that. But in the end, beloved, that that might be something you should pay attention to, but in the end, it's not going to matter. You're going to die. Your money will still be there. It'll be gone. You can't take it with you. You guys know that. The biggest issue for every human being is what happens to them when they die. That's it, because that's forever. Either they find themselves separated from God, or they find themselves in union with God and having eternal life. Period. Period. So this is the most important thing for us. It is the most important thing for any human being to get right. And it is the most important thing for any human being to know, to believe, to continue to trust in, and to tell every other human being. Huh? It is amazing to me. We we might get good stock advice, right? And we immediately, well, sometimes, depending on the situation, we might want to share it with our friends and family, right? Because we know what benefit it will bring to them right listen i've i heard an inside story about this particular stock if you buy now it's going to go up next week and oh baby you will benefit and we'll be able to go on vacation together and blah 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 right or when you find a good deal women do this all the time they find a good deal there's like an they push a button and all of a sudden it goes out to all the other women these shoes were on sale at this place right they communicate you you're not going to believe the deal i found right Man, I'm not sure what we do. I don't know if we even talk to each other. But women tend to do that. They spread the good news, right? Why why wouldn't we tell people about Jesus Christ? If it is the news, the most important news, if it is the best news, why would you keep that to yourself? Well, there's reasons but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. So anyway, back to this. Entire reliance on Jesus Christ. Listen, you know those insurance policies where they call them 80-20s? And what that usually means is they'll pay 80% of the bill, you pay 20% of the bill. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or 9010 they'll pay 90% of the bill, you pay 10%. Okay, okay. Jesus' reliance on Jesus Christ, entire reliance on Jesus Christ is not an 80-20 or a 90-10 or a 99-1. It is not, Jesus, you pay 99% of the bill that I owe in order to get into heaven and I'll make up the 1. It is not even 99.9 and you pick up the .1. It is 100% comprehensive in its coverage. Because you can't pay any portion of the bill. So let's look back at the text. Mark ten twenty one. And Jesus looking at him, he loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, listen, this can... This can seem a little strange or confusing, confusing, confusing. Shouldn't have used that word, I guess. If true righteousness is what this man lacks, and it is, it is the same thing that every unredeemed sinner lacks, then is Jesus saying to rich people, selling all your possessions, giving the proceeds to the poor, and then becoming a follower of Christ, will somehow you, somehow, make a person right with God? Is that what he's saying? If that is the case, if that is what he's saying, then wouldn't that be the instruction for every single rich person that Jesus or his disciples encountered? I would think it would be. If we don't think this through properly, if we just read this and walk away, we can actually think that this text is communicating that wealth is evil or poverty is good or the only way to be saved is by being poor. Okay? But none of those ideas are consistent with the rest of God's Word. None of those ideas. So let me just give you two examples just to so you know I'm not making that up. Joseph of Arimathea Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible says he was a disciple and he was a rich man. In fact, he was the man that gave his very expensive, large, cut-into-the-rock tomb, brand-new tomb where they buried people. He gave it, or he used it, for Jesus Christ's dead body. It was his tomb that Jesus was Buried in. And those type of tombs were only available to those who had a lot of cash, a lot of money, because they were not cheap. But the Bible says he was a disciple and he was rich. First Timothy 6.17, here's a passage. Paul is speaking or writing, and he says, listen, he's giving instructions now for those who are rich, rich Christians. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means thinking there's something better than everyone else. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Right? We know that. Riches grow wings and fly away. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Well, that just tells me they obviously are followers of Jesus Christ. They're obviously Christians and they weren't commanded to sell everything. They still have money. I mean, sure, if you read on in the text, Paul says, listen, be generous, share with others, but nowhere are you going to find Paul saying, you're rich? Oh, no, 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 no. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then you can think about following Jesus Christ. That's not what it says. The Bible has a lot to say about money and riches and how a Christian should deal with that and think about that and respond to that. But in this text, here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus was not giving the man instructions about riches for every Christian to follow, nor was he suggesting that self-imposed poverty, I'll make myself poor, I'll give away everything I have, I'll sell everything I have and give it to the poor. He's not suggesting that is the way to eternal life. It can't be. Because that would be inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. There was, however, an underlying problem that the man had that was preventing him from inheriting eternal life. That is, receiving it like a child. And Jesus' instruction, sell all that you have. Notice that. He doesn't say 10% or 50%, but He says specifically, you're going to have nothing left. Sell it all. That instruction, leaving him Ultimately, with nothing, I believe, was designed to expose the problem that he had. What problem, you ask? Well, that's a great question. Let's look back at the text. So after the man walks away in sadness, okay, because it says he had great possessions, Jesus looks around at his disciples, who are witnessing this whole event, probably just shaking their heads, and now he begins to elaborate further or explain more about what just happened. Look back at Mark chapter 10, verse 23. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, here's the picture. Rich man, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have. Give your money to the poor and come follow Me. He hears. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't say, You're out of your mind. He just accepts it but becomes disheartened, grieved really, just completely disappointed, turns around and walks away. Disciples are there, Jesus is there. Jesus looks around, sees the disciples. We can only imagine the look on their face. And he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So on the surface again now, this may seem like a strange statement. But like I said, it's important to note that this was not made in random, like a random s- statement. Jesus wasn't just walking along one day with his disciples and said, you know what, guys, how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is directly related to this rich man. So whatever whatever meaning we come to, it must apply to him. It has to at least apply to him, and it's going to apply to all those who have wealth. There has to be a connection. Now, I want you to notice something that it does not say. Sometimes it's helpful just to note what the text does not say. It does not say how difficult it would be for those who love wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Does it say that? It just says, although that is a problem. Okay, and we can go to other texts for that. But Jesus does not say that here. He says very specifically how difficult it is for those who have it. Just have it. I mention that because some, as I look at different commentaries and such, have suggested that love of money might be the issue that Jesus is addressing and might be the problem for this man. The reason he went away sad is because he had a lot of possessions and he loves his stuff, so he's not about to give it up. There are people that certainly love their stuff and don't want to part with it no matter what. But that is not what the text says here. And it is not what the text says about this man. I'm not comfortable assuming it. And I don't think it fits the greater context as we've been looking at this passage. Not everyone who has wealth necessarily is in love with it or idolizes it. Okay? Okay? That would be unfair to say that. If you're rich, you love your money. That's unfair. I don't know your heart. You, your money may, have, may not have your heart at all. You may just be a really good business person. Or maybe you inherited it. I don't know or you hit the lotto, but certainly money can influence you to such things. But to immediately assume that someone who has money loves money is just not proper. Beyond that, I know Job. He was a rich man, the Bible says. A very rich man. And when God, through these events, if you've never read the book, ends up allowing Job to be basically wiped out, he didn't say, Oh, no, my possessions! He said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Which just tells me that that stuff didn't have Job. Job had the stuff, but it didn't have him. So I said all that to just say I don't think it's fair to say that this man was in love with his money and that was the problem. I am convinced, based on the context and everything we've been looking at, that the problem for this man, like I said, was not love of money, but a spirit of independence and self-reliance. That is a common consequence of having wealth. It is. It's a natural consequence. Let me explain. The wealthy, those who have more than enough, contrary to the poor, are not in the daily position of relying upon the mercy of others to meet their needs. They don't have to ask for anything, beloved. They don't have to beg. They don't have to plead. They just buy. They just buy. Self reliance, trusting in your own resources and abilities, instead of reliance, depending on someone else's resources and abilities, are extreme opposites. You know that phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Have you ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves? Two things. One, that's not in the Bible. The phrase is not. And two, the idea is not in the Bible. So if any of you think I'm crazy, try to find that idea, and then I'll change my position. It's not in the Bible. God helps... Here's what is in the Bible. God helps the helpless. God helps the weak. God helps the spiritually sick. Those who acknowledge their pitiful condition before God as sinners who are not deserving of God's kingdom, but of His wrath and in total childlike dependence, ask for and receive His mercy and grace with thankful hearts. Back to my jar illustration. Can you imagine as a dad? Oh, you can't open it? That's pathetic. You know what? I help those who help themselves. Try harder. What does that even mean? What do you mean try harder, Dad? I've been trying harder. I've been working at this for half an hour. Well, I'll help those who help themselves. I'm helpless. Yep. That's right. Mark 2.17. This is a text we looked at many, many months ago, I believe. Jesus heard it. He said to, the, said to them, Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician. He's talking about their spiritual wellness. Those who are well, they don't have. But he's using this comparison, this physical example that they could understand. Hey, those who are well, they're okay. They don't need a doctor. But those who are sick, they're the ones who need help. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus came for Sinners. He came for the helpless, the weak, the ones who couldn't open the jar. The problem with the Pharisees is they thought they had already opened the jar. They didn't need Jesus. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were well. And there are lots of people that have the same mindset of those Pharisees today. Hey, look, I'm okay. And if you're okay, if you're okay, then Jesus didn't come for you. He didn't come for you. Until you realize that He did come for you and you need Him in a bad way. One writer says, the peculiar danger confronting the rich lies in the false sense of security which wealth creates and in the temptation to trust in material resources and personal power, when what is demanded by the law and the gospel is a wholehearted reliance upon God. That's what the law demands. And that's what the gospel communicates. Another writer said, How profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God? The children, and if you remember, we looked at that passage in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. The children in the former story who possess nothing are not told that they lack anything. But rather the kingdom of God belongs to such as them. And we looked at that in some detail. Yet this man who possesses everything, external righteousness, wealth, still lacks something. And only when he sells all that he has, only when he becomes like a vulnerable child, will he finally possess everything. There's a quote, Proverbs. Proverbs is just a fantastic section of Scripture. It's a book of wisdom. I would highly recommend that you read it on a regular basis. There are 31 Proverbs, I believe. And so if you, if you just read one a day, you can read through the entire section, book of Proverbs, a month, once a month. I'm just going to quote from one of them. Proverbs chapter 30, and uh, verse 8 and 9. Listen to what the, the writer says. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? <laughs> or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's interesting. Lest I be full and deny you. Why, if you're full, would you deny the Lord? It was the same thing that God warned the people of Israel when they were going to come into the land in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 12 and surrounding that area. And he says, listen guys, I'm going to give you houses you do not build, vineyards you did not plant, wells you did not dig. I'm going to give it all to you. You're going to go in and take possession of the land. The other people built those houses, dug those wells, planted those vineyards. I'm going to give it all to you. But you be careful that when you become full and satisfied that you don't all of a sudden forget who gave them to you, and forget your God. It's, a, it's sadly a natural consequence of, of being independent through having every, all of your needs met, which wealth does. You can forget that you need anybody because your pattern of life is you don't. You don't have to rely on the mercy of others. You rely on your bank account. Jesus asked this man to sell all that he had and follow Christ. Not because he was in love with this stuff. I don't believe that. But as a picture or illustration of what is required to enter God's kingdom. Total dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation. Listen, had the man sold everything, okay? Had he sold everything, he literally would have nothing to fall back on. And would have looked to Jesus for all that he needed as he was following Him. He had nothing else. He would look to Jesus in dependence. He would look to Jesus and His resources and His abilities in order to provide for that man. And so it is true with eternal life. We look to Jesus. Total dependence on Him. Not on my resources and abilities. On His. On His righteousness. Not my own. I don't have righteousness. Pure, undefiled righteousness. And it is only by looking to Him and relying upon Him alone, 100% that I can hope to enter And even know I may enter into that eternal kingdom when that day comes. Beloved, the disciples were amazed at Jesus' words, is what the text says. Okay? They were amazed. But Jesus didn't leave it alone. He just never does. He continues to drive home his point. Look back at the text with me. Mark 10, 24. Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. It's like, Oh my, what is going on with Jesus? If that wasn't enough, you pull that one out? Okay, we'll just read on. And he said to them and said to him, So now here's how they re- reply then who can be saved? We're going to talk about that in a moment. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. I don't think he was smiling like I just did. But I just—I just, was thinking in my mind about the look on their face. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Two things about this... Section right here that you may not know that might be helpful to you if you don't know them. Over the years, people have debated about the words in verse 25, this easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They've debated about it. I just want to address that very quickly because I think the debate is kind of a waste of time. But I still want to address it. Some people have said that God, or Jesus actually, was not referring to an actual needle, but he was referring to something that was called the needle's eye which was, they believe, an entrance on the gate to the city, which was different than the main gate. On the main gate, you could go through the city on your camel with your stuff. The needle's eye, you could not enter uh, with your camel because it was too short and narrow. So you'd either have to have the camel crawl through on his knees, or it was designed to keep people from just pouring through there with their camels. It was more of a pedestrian access. Okay, I'm not sure why people even started to say that's what Jesus was saying. Some have suggested that the statement is just too harsh, so they're trying to find a way out. I'm not sure that's what's going on. So they're thinking maybe if you suggest that if the camel gets down on his knees and he crawls through, then he can still get in. Okay, I'll just tell you right now, there is no archaeological evidence for the needle's eye. It was just, it's a story that was made up. There's no support for it. So it's a figment of someone's imagination. We think there's a needle's eye, and that's what he was referring to. No, there's no archaeological evidence for it. So then others have said, Well, okay, we know what's going on here. Because they're just struggling with this picture of a camel going through the needle. Okay? Which is exactly what the apostles or disciples were struggling with. They were amazed by his words, so they were designed to be shocking, but I'll get to that in a second. So some have said, Well, the word for camel and the word for rope are actually only one letter difference in the Greek. That is true. And they sound the same when you say them. So maybe when they were, when they were copying these manuscripts that the disciples originally wrote, maybe they used the wrong word. And, and Jesus really said, it's harder for a rope to get through the eye of a needle than a, you know, instead of a camel. That's ridiculous too. We have three Gospels with this story three of them. That would mean that every gospel writer either got it wrong or he got it right, but then every time those manuscripts were copied, every single scribe copied it wrong. I don't, I'm don't. i not buying it. I'm not buying it. And then there's someone else or some other people that say there's an Aramaic text, and there is, and their word there is actually the same word for rope and camel, believe it or not. It's the same word in Aramaic for rope and camel. It is. And so one English translator has translated that word rope here in this text. But that's funny because in that same translation, the word is used in Matthew 23:24, where Jesus compares a gnat and a camel. He says, you guys try to keep gnats out, but you swallow the camel whole. Guess what? Same Aramaic word, but the English translator translates it camel there. So his choice to translate it rope, where it could be translated either way, doesn't change anything at all. And in the and by the way, I don't know if you're here, but somebody a few weeks ago wrote me a note about that Aramaic translation. If you're here, they forgot to put their name on it. If you're here, please uh, let me know who you were. I have some other information I would love to share with you about that translation. Either way, beloved, rope, camel. And by the way, I'm convinced it's camel. Either way, I don't care if you try to put a rope or a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not getting through. That, that's why I think the whole discussion is just accept Jesus' words. This is what he did. He, he used hyperbole. He used these illustrations that were designed to pow, wake these people and go, what did he just say? And camel would have been very familiar to them. It was the largest land animal that they were familiar with in their culture. So then he takes the largest thing they know about or familiar with, and the smallest thing—the eye of a needle. It says, "You know how hard it is? Here's how hard it is: put a camel through the eye of a needle." What? That's impossible. That's right. That's the point there. Okay. Second thing: the amazement of the disciples. Let me let me explain to you why they were so amazed, and why they said when he says, "Hey, rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible." They're like, "Then who can be saved?" Okay, why would they say that? Well, the predominant Jewish thinking was that the rich had the favor of God because of their righteousness. Therefore, God blessed them materially. That's what they thought. So in other words, if you were wealthy, a Jewish man, you were wealthy, they immediately assumed you must be righteous. That's why God is blessing you. It is the same mistake Job's, quote, friends made when God allowed Satan to take everything from him. Remember, he was a wealthy, rich man. And in a matter of moments, he lost all of his possessions and the majority of his, almost all of his family. Gone. And so Job's friends immediately started, well, not immediately, but over time they started to assume, Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something wrong because we know that the righteous have God's favor and he would never let this happen to them. In fact, They are blessed materially, financially, so on and so forth. Blessed with children. Okay, That was the predominant thinking. But it was wrong. It was wrong. Certainly God can bless, but just because someone's wealthy does not mean that they're righteous or that they're even having favor with God, per se, in that way. Uh, People acquire money through all kinds of sinful means. Does that mean God's blessing that? Additionally, here's the other problem giving to the poor, or what the Bible refers to, or maybe you've heard, alms giving. Alms giving was expected of every religious Jew. It was if you were a a religious Jew, you did, you prayed, you fasted, you went to synagogue, you gave to the poor. Uh, It was very important. Okay? And, And that is important because it reflected God's concern for the poor in the Old Testament. God has a heart for the helpless. In every way, financially, physically, spiritually, he has a heart for them. And he became angry many times when the people would not pay attention to them or mistreat them or take advantage of them. So it was, almsgiving was important. The problem was, the Jewish people took it to a new level. And they thought that almsgiving would somehow make up for your sin. So that you could give money for the poor, and that would make you okay with God for the sin that you have committed. Let me just read this. This is from a writing that was written between the last prophet when he spoke, and when Jesus showed up to the world. This is called, this is his 400 years. They call it the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New. This was a a collection of writings written by the Jews, referred to as the Apocrypha, and I'm going to quote from one of their books. And the Jews were aware of it, and it had an influence on the Jewish community. Here's what it says Water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. And what that means is it makes up for it, it makes it okay. So if you're wrong, if you've got anything, you know, God's got something against you because you've sinned, just give some more money to the poor, and you're good. That's not true, but that's what they thought. If that was the case, beloved, then wow, right? Wow, the rich have a real advantage. That's right. That's exactly what they thought. They saw the rich and they said, wow, those are righteous men. They have the favor of God. Obviously, look at their wealth. Beyond that, they were able to go to synagogue and dump huge amounts. Right? Here comes poor old, you know, Bob. You know, he's got nothing. He puts in his. Oh, that's pathetic. Here comes rich Johnny. And you know, he pulls in the bags and drops it. Wow! Woo! That guy's definitely good with God now. But then Jesus says, Oh, you know what? They're rich. They can't get into heaven. On their own. What? That's why they were so shocked. And that's why they said, Then who can be saved? Because if these guys who we believe are righteous... And are able to give more than anyone else and make up for any maybe mistakes they've made against the law. What hope is for the poor? Because obviously the poor are that way because they're not righteous, they don't they're not lawkeepers, and they don't have anything to really give to make up for their sin. They're dead man walking. Do you see that? That was the thinking, that was the context, that was the culture, that's why they were blown away. And what Jesus says here basically just shatters all of their false and erroneous thinking in just a few words. You guys think the rich have an advantage? Nobody has an advantage. Nobody. On their own. Do you want to know how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says? Hey, it's impossible. In fact, it is impossible for rich and poor alike. For he says, with man it is impossible. Now he just includes all of humanity. Verse 27. It's not just the rich. No man has the ability on his own to do what is necessary to obtain a ticket to heaven. Humanity cannot achieve salvation on their own. They do not have what it takes. They do not have the arm strength or the wrist strength to open the jar. They cannot save themselves. They can do nothing to contribute to their salvation. They must completely and totally be saved by God by fully relying on Jesus Christ. That's it. Why? Why, beloved? Because only through Jesus is forgiveness of sins and a righteous standing before God made possible. Only through Him. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can have forgiveness of sins. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are credited by faith, credited with His righteousness. Remember I told you earlier, there has only been one person in all of human history that has lived a perfect life, flawless. He complied with the law inwardly and outwardly. You know who it was? Jesus Christ. What God does when we place our faith in Him, is not only does He forgive us for our sins because of the work that Christ did on the cross, but He credits us with the righteousness that we need to enter His kingdom. He credits us with Jesus' righteousness. That is what it means to be in Christ. It means not only do I know forgiveness, but I know righteousness. Wow. Total dependence Receive it like a child. By the way, the all things are possible with God, do you see that there? That's how he finishes this. He says all things are possible with God. I've I've used this myself out of its context and people use it all the time. They'll be like, look at me! I've climbed the mountain! Right? And they say all things are possible with God. Well, okay. But in context, you know what he's talking about? He's, in context, it's obvious. He's saying all things necessary for salvation. That's the context, beloved. Jesus isn't saying, listen, you can, you can build your business. Because all things are possible with me. You can conquer that mountain. You can lose that ten pounds. Really? You think that's what Jesus was concerned about? No. All things are possible. Everything you need in order to inherit eternal life are possible because of me. Are possible because of God who has given me. That's what he's saying. See, Jesus was God's solution to our problem. But if we don't recognize that we even have a problem, then we won't seek God's solution. I'm not sick. I don't need a physician. But you are sick. I'm sick. And I need a physician. So here are some things to consider as we just think about this, about the implications of entire reliance upon Jesus Christ. And by the way, this reliance upon Jesus Christ is not like a one-time thing. Okay, Let me just say that. It's not like one time in your life I'll be dependent on Jesus Christ, I get saved, and now I can depend on myself. (laughs) Uh, Those of you who have tried that, I've tried it. It's not. It doesn't work out too well. It really doesn't. It's entire reliance upon Jesus Christ forever. When I get into the eternal kingdom, I'll still be relying on Him. When I stand on the outside of that gate, it'll be my reliance upon Him that opens the doors. So if you are relying upon Christ alone, then let me just... If you are, if you are, here's some things to think through in your own mind, then a bad day or a bad week will not wipe you out emotionally or spiritually. Here's what I mean. We call this performance-based Christianity, which is what a lot of people have in their mind. They're, They're not fully relying upon Jesus Christ. So somehow they're relying upon their own performance to make themselves right with God. If I'm fully relying upon Jesus Christ, then let's say I have a bad day. And by bad day, I mean, I blew it. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't walk in righteousness. I sinned. Yelled at my wife. Became angry. Lusted. Cursed. Told the guy on the freeway he was number one. All of those things. I blew it. I feel like a, Piece of trash. You are a piece of trash, man. That's what I'm saying. Praise be to God that I'm not relying upon myself or even my ability to be good that day, but I'm relying fully and completely on Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so I say, Lord, I have forgiveness for that. Blow it. I have Forgiveness. I don't have to be condemned. And I stand in Christ and I am clothed in His righteousness. I'm relying upon it. And therefore I have relationship with my God. It cannot be broken. That's just one thing to think about. By the way, if you're relying upon Christ alone, then a good day or a good week will not puff you up. Wow, man, I made it all the way home without telling anybody they were number one. I didn't curse today. I think I love my wife like I'm supposed to. Right? Wow, I'm doing good. I'm good. That's not entire reliance upon Jesus Christ. There you go again. There I go again. Looking at myself. Listen, I never change my position. Or at least I shouldn't. Jesus, I am right with my Father because of you. Not because I was 80% compliant today with what you want me to do. Not because of that. Because of you. Because of my faith in you. Because of what you have already done. Oh! If we could get that, beloved... If you are relying upon Christ alone, then you do not need to question God's love for you and His current attitude towards you. How many times have we said something like this? I think God's mad at me. I I feel. I feel like God's mad at me. I feel like God hates me. That is not entire reliance upon Jesus Christ. If you were outside of Jesus Christ, then all of those feelings would be appropriate. But in Jesus Christ, Forgiven, cleansed, clothed in righteousness. How could He love you any less? How could He love you any more? He loves you as He loves His Son because you're relying upon Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ. Wow! That will revolutionize your life to the degree that you get that. I have the favor of my Father. And nothing will change that. I have His love. Because I was good today? No. Nope. Because of Jesus Christ. You see how this lifts Jesus Christ up? You see how this causes us to give Him praise? You see how it just causes us to continue to focus on the cross and what He accomplished for us? You see how it causes us not to become arrogant? or discouraged, or depressed. All of those things kill Christians. They kill them. And if you're relying upon Christ alone, and this is it, then you will put no confidence in your flesh to battle sin, or live for God. But you will put total confidence in Christ, and this is amazing, who lives in you. What? What? Yeah, Galatians 2.20, that's what Paul says. Listen, Paul says, remember the Apostle Paul? People think, wow, that man was amazing. That man wasn't amazing. Jesus Christ was amazing in that man's life. That's what Paul kept saying. Listen, I am what I am by the grace of God. I want to turn all the praise back to Him for what He has done through me. Paul just got out of the way and let Jesus live through him. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm, I'm with Him. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God because of Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live. Was Paul saying he was dead? He's saying, it's not me anymore. That man's dead. He died on the cross with Christ. But Christ who lives in me. He's the one who lives. Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, in this flesh... You know how I lived that life? By pulling myself up by my bootstraps and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good today. No. He says, I live that life now in the flesh. I live it by faith in the Son of God. Who is that? Jesus. I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul just can't get over it. The life I now live, I live by the power of Jesus Christ. So my ability to say no to sin and walk in righteousness is strictly related to my ability to place my faith in Jesus Christ to live through me. And His power that He has given for me to say no to sin and His power that I have now because of Him to walk in righteousness. That's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you. Father, we can't thank you enough for Jesus Christ. We can't, and I, I am burdened day in and day out by the, the one, this one thing, knowing that there are those, maybe even, certainly even, within this room or who come to summit who have not yet placed their complete and total reliance in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray You would break through all that. Father, that You would help them see their need. That they would seek the physician. That they would cast themselves upon Him, Jesus Christ. That they would abandon any hope or trust or confidence in their own ability to earn or merit something as worthy as the kingdom of God, that they would see that we are all unworthy and trust in Jesus alone. Father, do that for Your own sake, for Your own glory, that Your grace may be put on display in one more person. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus Christ and we have trusted in Him, Father, I know in my own life that I don't always trust in Him. I'm not always fully relying on Him. And when I do that, my life is miserable. So Father, help Your people to get off that evil roller coaster that devastates us. Help us to find complete confidence and joy in Him alone. Help us find our strength and our courage, our hope and our confidence in what Jesus has done and is doing as He lives in us.